Welcome to On Renewal, where we explore how people, organizations, and society at large can adapt in the face of change. This is your host, Sam Sager, and I have a thought-provoking conversation with Paul Miller today. He's a former strategy consultant, author, writer, thinker, who's best known for his book and podcast, The Pathless Path. We have a winding conversation where we start with the scripts and societal pressures that box people in, and then discuss how to break out to discover new paths and new possibilities. I think you're going to enjoy it. So let's jump in. Paul, how are you doing today? Hey, excited to uh, dive in and get nerdy today, Sam. Yeah, I'm really looking forward forward to this conversation. I think we have so many different things to talk about and a lot of different threads to follow through. I want to start with a, a hard-hitting question out of the gate. How do you describe yourself to people these days? I don't, I, I'm terrible at this. This is not a hard hitting question. I think as my path like goes further and I mean, I call it the pathless path for a reason because I really don't know what I'm doing. I'm sort of uh, also making up the labels I give it along the way. Uh, oftentimes I'm sort of just like AB testing how things sound and like see how people respond just to like learn myself. But um Mostly just say I do a bunch of stuff. I write, I create, I do a little bit of consulting to pay the bills and sort of just describe myself like that. And then basically I wait to see, is somebody curious or not? If they're not, I just move on. Um, if they're curious, like I can go all day talking about these things, which I imagine we'll do today. Yeah. Has has publishing a book changed that at all or, or made you more more digestible for for more people? I, the boomers definitely see it as like, oh, wow, you've done something in the world. <laughs> um, that's like, like job, job promotion equivalent, um, sort of promotion on my path. But I do think the book in general does seem to have this like magical framing power for other people in terms of like, they see, oh, you're serious about X. Um, which in my case is the exploration of like life paths and how we live our life. Um, so I think it's sort of a proof of work and like an excuse to talk to me about these things. And I think in terms of like going on podcasts, for example, it's way easier to say, Hey, I wrote a book about this and spent a year of my life writing it. Um, do you want to talk about this? Then like, Hey, I wrote a bunch of essays and I have a newsletter with a bunch of people on it. Yeah. I'd love to just get a, a quick overview of your story. But first, the reason I ask these questions is I'm fascinated by how the way in which people describe themselves seems to me to be so important to them. And I think that some people have resistance to taking untraditional paths, doing new things, because they're afraid of what other people are going to think, and they don't even know how they would describe it to them. Have you have you found that to be the case as you've talked to people? Yeah. So if you really care about um, what people think of you and how to describe how you're describing yourself or how others see you, you should definitely not follow this path. Um, I think when I left my path, so I'll give you the, the background here. So I grew up like first generation college student, parents didn't go to college. Education was super important. I happened to be good at school, liked school, um, sort of ended up at a big state school in the U S 
and loved it there, but was surrounded by like honor students. And these students came from all parts of Connecticut and the Northeast and gone to like impressive schools and had impressive parents and started introducing me to these worlds of like high prestige professions and impressive grad schools. And they started talking about like, I ended up at UConn because it was like a full scholarship, but I applied to these other schools and like realizing there was all these layers of status and prestige. Um, And I got sucked in. I loved it. Uh, I found out about strategy consulting. One, I thought it'd be super interesting. Two, I found out there was a ranking and I was like, oh, I can optimize this like engineer at heart. Like I was doing engineering and business and like, I just wanted to succeed. Um, Looking back now, I was just insecure about like entering the real world, didn't really know what I was doing and uh, wanted to feel special. So went deep into that world. Luckily enough, though, I actually liked strategy consulting when I did finally break in. Uh, I liked it a lot. Um, The problem was, as you grow in your career, the things you like doing are not the things you're incentivized to do in your career. Uh, You're incentivized to play politics, climb the ladder, keep moving in your career, keep making more money. And it totally bored me. Um, So I decided to walk away. And part of wanting to walk away was me just wanting to escape that world. I thought it was so silly. People worried way too much about things that didn't seem to matter to me. And I didn't want the label anymore. I just wanted to like run away from that world. So especially at first uh, on my path, I sort of rejected all labels. I didn't want to be anyone anymore. I didn't want to be this person. People like put these scripts on. Um, oh, Paul's an impressive worker. He works at this company. It's like, I didn't want it anymore. Um, now I'm sort of ambivalent of whether I have like an impressive label or not. I realize it does have an effect on people saying like, oh, I'm a published author, but I don't care about these labels. Like, um, I'm really in search of like finding worth, worth work worth doing and trying to play long games that I want to keep living, keep doing. Yeah. Why do you think it's such a part of our culture that everybody gets their their value or so many people get their value from their work and, and, and what they do and the prestige attached to that? I think one, work is way better than it used to be and is actually more enjoyable for many more people than at any time in history, right? I think I make the point in my book that full-time employment is this great innovation. You're basically funneling wealth from a society that creates all this innovation and prosperity to the individuals of the society through full-time jobs. It's amazing. And like in the U S we have taken this to extremes. We like, we have an expanding pool of upper middle class. People don't realize this, like the ranks of the lower income have increased. The middle has shrunk, but we've also increased the upper middle class. Um, and this is great, right? The work's better. It's less oppressive than it used to be. It's more enjoyable. But as like religion and society is atomized, like it's become so important and high stakes. And like, especially like with our generation, our expectations increased, I think, faster than work actually improved. So we have this enormous expectation. And like, I don't think work in the form of a job can actually deliver that for people. So it's like, Work is just, it's just something we do. Like we have this urge to contribute, be part of society, but like 
most full-time jobs aren't going to deliver that glory for you, that like salvation of like deep connectedness. And I think like my book is an argument that you might actually be able to find that, but I don't know if you can get paid for it. (laughs) Yeah. So how do you, how do you reconcile that in your own life? I mean, me, I basically just lowered my cost of living a lot for several years and was willing to pay the status costs and the uncertainty cost in terms of not knowing what I was doing next and also facing criticism from like people I loved and um, lack of like, I didn't have that glow, that status, that prestige, that halo that comes with you when you are on an impressive career track, making a lot of money in the US. Like whether we want it to be true or not, if you make a lot of money in the US, you will be seen as good and impressive. And like when you step away from that kind of path, you should not expect to keep those, um, keep those like halos as you go on this new path. And like I certainly realized that. So like I cut my cost of living and like paid the status cost. Um, and ultimately what I discovered is that like more spaciousness entered my life was, oh, there are things I like doing. There are things I forgot I like doing. There's a state of being in terms of connecting to myself that is pretty amazing. And I want to keep this alive as long as possible. If I have to go back to a full-time job, fine. But like, I'm just going to like keep hacking a living so I can keep uh, this connection to myself and connection to like a deeper way of working alive. That's such a powerful point. I think I've often seen how many people are willing to do whatever it takes to see their earnings, their income, their salary, just go up a bit year after year. And I think it's, it's partly because that's kind of the scoreboard that our society has. That's kind of somewhat easy to digest and easy to get value from. Do you have any thoughts for people who are, have been playing that game for a while and just ways they can start to see it slightly differently? Yeah, I I think the reason I didn't leave my job earlier is that I didn't have any imagination for another possibility for how to live my life. I was surrounded by full-time wage workers or at least people that structured their lives around a primary wage earner in their families. That was literally all I knew. I never met an entrepreneur in my life, right? Entrepreneurship was risky and like, like even in the Northeast now, I still think it's looked at sort of as like a bad thing. Like I was, I've been shocked at how little like active encouragement I've received from the people in my life. I can count on my hand, like my hand less than five people that are like rooting me on. Um, Now people aren't criticizing me. I think mostly in the U S like this is a good thing. People are more or less accepting of like all sorts of different ways to approach your life, but there's not much active encouragement. Right. Yeah. And so when you're in a system um, you react to the incentives that are there. And I think the concept most of us have about our working careers and lives is that we are in control. We're in the driver's seat. I think my understanding of like system dynamics and like organizational um, incentives is that like I sort of started to realize like, oh, the system's going to shape me more than my principles. 
right? I'm just part of a system. I'm going to be molded into what the system wants. I can fight against that. And I did, but the tension increased. And eventually that like tension led to like what I would label as like burnout and burnout in the sense of being disconnected from what mattered to me. And like, I eventually was like reject, I would have been rejected by the system if I hadn't exited myself. Right. So most people um, are in those states. They're in the system. They're doing what the system wants. So like, I don't even think it's this like uh, conspiratorial force of like nudging people to care about incomes growing. It's like, Hey, if I can grow my income by X and like do these things, I'm going to do it. And then the more time and energy you spend in that, like that means you have less time, energy and reflection for thinking about different ways to live your life. The deeper you go into that system, the more you numb that imagination and the less likely you're going to be doing anything about it. I sort of sensed I was numbing myself and it scared the shit out of me and I wanted to blow it up and like find another way. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting because I grew up in the Northeast like you, started my career in there also in management consulting, and then I moved to North Carolina. And that shift in environment just shook things up for me. And it's like, oh, there's less of a focus on where you went to school, less of a focus on status, lower cost of living. And it just made it so much easier to feel like, oh, I can start a business. I could do these different things. I then moved back to Boston and I'd gotten super interested in healthcare. And so I joined a large healthcare company. Part of it was, I think, you know, that environment just is saying, hey, that's partly what you do. But I went in wanting to be an outsider, just kind of exploring the system. And within a year, I had, you know, lost that perspective and had started getting driven by the same things everybody else in the organization were to try to be you know, as successful as possible within what everybody there cared about. So I think that what you're saying around that power of environment is so, it's so challenging to, to navigate. Yeah, I think, and that's the power, right? I think this is why self-employment is also underrated. Like it puts you in a state in which you're constantly forced to experiment. So like you mm. naturally are not in one system, one environment nonstop. You have to do different kinds of work. You have to try different things to survive. And that sort of experimentation in different modes and different environments and different people you interact with naturally adds like more chaos to your life, but more chaos in a, in a way that like brings more aliveness to like your state of being. And like, I'd probably fall into the same traps if I went back into an organization I think I've been living nomadically for about uh, four years now. And one of my realizations is that I'm pretty dumb. Like, I'm just like a body of biology. It turns out like one of the biggest levers for my happiness is living in a place with sunlight. Like more sunlight, more sun makes me happier. That sort of dictates where we live now because... I want to live in a place that makes me happy. <laughs> and it turns out if there's more like darkness and earlier sunsets and less sunny days, I'm just like a little bit grumpier. Um, and the same is true for like work. So like your mood and success is downstream from the environment you put yourself in. Like yeah. I worked at McKinsey and I thrived because it was a place that strove for excellence. 
I then worked at a place, my last job, I won't even, I won't name them, but like you could figure it out. It wasn't a place orienting around excellence. It was a place orienting around one to 2% organic growth, maybe less if you get around some accounting wiggle room. And it was just like very cutthroat. Yeah. Non-zero sum, very competitive, not helpful. Um, and it wasn't a place where I thrived. And that's eventually the place that drove me to burn out and leave. Um, and it's always funny, like looking back, like if I just stayed at McKinsey longer, would I have had a more interesting path? I don't, I don't know. It's like, yeah. it's hard to know um, where our paths would be. And I think being on my own for five years, I've learned to be super humble about like, like there's so many possibilities for my life. And I don't think there is a right path. Um, there's just sort of the one you end up on. Yeah, I think this this discussion around environment is a good segue into a conversation around like why we have the culture we have and you know how the the organizations, the institutions around us kind of shape the world we live in and what are the benefits of that, but also what are the costs. And so I think this is a topic you've thought a lot about. I'd love to hear your thoughts on kind of how you think about the cultural norms, cultural institutions, and how they shape the world in which we inhibit. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people have written a lot more about this than me in terms of like how we experience reality. And we are the beneficiaries of multiple generations of this sort of global um, success and prosperity. And we often don't pause enough to reflect on this. We're so focused on the drama of our time, right? But you read history and you realize like every year in history was insane. Like, never stops being insane it's always crazy whenever whatever year you'd pop into but we're we have the result of this global prosperity and success but we've had this current order of like orienting our life around full-time employment right and it's become the explicit goal of almost every nation around the world since after world war ii the problem is our generation and generations after us have like hand-me-down scripts of how to live life Right. So somebody going into an organization in the 1950s, this is this is really interesting in the book, The Organization Man um, by William White is like the previous generation was like, what the heck? These young people are going into big organizations. This is crazy. Aren't they going to like go make a living on their own? It it was radical to the previous generation. It's like, why are they? And they also were like, why are they playing it so safe? Like, why, why mm. would they do this? Right. Um, so in that time and age though, like these companies were like innovating, they were growing fast. There was a lot of opportunity. You get promoted to like vice president at like 28 years old, just by happenstance of like being in the right place at the right time. So then you fast forward that the boomers then entered the workforce and were like this dominant large percentage of the workforce their entire generation at every point in their careers they were the biggest percentage of the workforce and they benefited from previous generations retired or left the workforce earlier or were never there to begin with right so then they reach the end of their career and they've had this like well you just put your head down and you get promoted to vice president at 27 and you stay until you're 68 and like everything works out you casually get rich working a job for other people right so 
the next generations are sort of handed these scripts like here's how you live life here's how you show up in the world and are a successful person we have no idea why we're doing this we just know we're being told like the second hand-me-down version of the script um so we sort of enter life and like we're living out these scripts our generation more than previous generations like like we experience reality as sort of like a movie. We have these ideas of like how our life's supposed to go. Then we sort of go and live it out. And then we hope things work out. The problem is like the entire environment has changed, right? Works more atomized. Nobody works consistently for a company anymore. Pensions don't exist. And like things are changing even more rapidly. So like, if you want to be thriving in your career, we have these increased expectations of work too. Like, everything's just out of whack. Right. And like, I think the boldest claim from my book that I don't really say, but it's sort of implicit is that we're all on a pathless path. We're Mm. sort of just pretending like we have things figured out. We think if we take a full-time job, everything will be solved and figured out. Like, and it only works if everyone else agrees not to talk about it or not like (laughs) interrogate that. Um, But the pandemic's, sort of forced that reflection it was like wait a second yeah the stories are off yeah i feel like the last couple of years more than ever before i've seen people that are waking up and saying oh this job that i thought was super stable was stable until it's not and it's been amazing to see how many more people are picking their head up and saying oh i'm going to move to a different place just because i want to and then figure it out or i'm going to take a step back in my career and reevaluate do you, do you find that that is happening at an accelerating rate or is that just, do we, are we more aware of it because, you know, it's just been such a, a weird couple of years? I don't know. I, I wonder if I have like a self-selection bias, right? I did notice an increase in people coming to reach out and talk about these things um, after the pandemic. Um, so it seems like it. Um, but also like I I don't know. I could just be in a bubble of my own creation, right? Right. <laughs> um, where I talk and think about these things a lot. But it does seem like there is a little more open discussion. Like I was working remotely and committed to working remotely when I left my job in 2017. People thought this was crazy. Um, now it's like, oh, you were kind of on to something, right? Work is changing. Um I used to sit around these discussions like before the pandemic with previous generations and they detail these horrific things that happened to work. Oh, Lenny got laid off a year before his pension. He's 59. He doesn't have health care anymore. He has no retirement savings. It's like, what? How do you listen to this and then say like, well, you should just get a job, buddy, and like follow the path. It's like, I think previous generations, the odds of the default path working were much higher Mm. such that like you could kind of ignore like Lenny's life getting destroyed. Now, like we like I first experienced the workforce through the lens of the great financial crisis and like saw friends get laid off for no reason. Right. So like we're a little more skeptical also like the benefits aren't there as they were for previous generations. So like the odds of it working out are lower and people are more willing to like talk about emotions and feelings, which I think is generally a good thing. And it's like, Oh, it's not just about the financial payoff in the house and the status. Like there also might be this 
opportunity to like feel alive and connected. And like, I know, especially among men, most men in my generation don't want to numb themselves or work just for the sake of like, you earn the money for a family. It's like, they want to be present for their kids. And that's definitely a goal for me. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I was actually talking to my father-in-law the other day about this idea of ambition and, you know, he's, he's in the boomer generation and, you know, I think there's this common refrain, like young people don't want to work anymore. They're not, they're not willing to, you know, devote themselves to their jobs in the same way past generations are. And I put forth the argument that, well, ambition is necessarily, doesn't mean it's less, maybe it's just ambition across a wider area. I know for myself, like family is going to be really important. These other things I'm interested in outside of a, a day-to-day job, super important. And so in many ways, I actually think my ambition has increased it's just not devoted in a single area. And I, I love the way you described it as legible ambition versus illegible ambition. I'd l- could you could you share a bit more about that? Yeah, legible ambition is the kind that can be seen through the production of job titles and raises, right? Um, and a lot of that for many people involves basically suffering. Suffering in the sense of like undermining your who you are. Like show up to work fully as who you are. Like some companies say this, nobody means that, (laughs) right? Um, And in most cases, like you have to deal with like managers who manipulate you, who are scheming for promotions, Um, people who don't make you feel great and doing it day after day after day, right? Previous generations, I will give them credit that there were less paths available. And you couldn't earn more than like you needed to make in a given year for most jobs. That has changed. So like more people are seeing more degrees of freedom. I think the the challenge is like ambition sort of gets undermined by this default path for many people. And maybe this is what you're saying as well. And like my ambition was like nothing when I left. I didn't want to do anything, but in the like thawing out and like softening back into my life that like started to reemerge and take new form and new shape. So like, am I ambitious in the sense that like, I want to be Mark Zuckerberg or Elon Musk or like form a massive company? Not really, but I am very ambitious in the sense that like, I want to write for the rest of my life. And I want to tango with like interesting ideas and challenge myself to um, continue to grow as a person, right? I'm way more ambitious than I was in the past. It's just that like people can't see like, oh, Paul got a funding round and is an entrepreneur or Paul got a promotion, right? And this is a, a challenge for many people in today's world like previous generations, like everyone would kind of know what everyone was doing and like status was very easy to recognize. You could get see status through like cars. Now it's very confusing. You don't know who like the poorest people might have the nicest cars now. So now like I see among workers, full-time workers, the status symbol is now like having a micro mansion, right? Turning Mm. your like income Cause like nobody even knows what job titles are anymore. Like the status symbol on the default path is like your ability to 
produce like a small mansion that you like run and maintenance and hire a bunch of people to like maintain. Right. But like for me, I don't have the income stability to do that right now. So like I have a hard time turning my ambition into status. Like a book is one way that a sort of ambition that I'm totally comfortable with. Right. Cause I want to continue to write for the rest of my life. So I set this ambitious goal of like writing a book damn hard, but also made me a better person, I think, and made me go deeper, made me reflect on myself and made me really do something hard and worthwhile. Yeah, that's exactly it. I I remember being in some of these organizations and looking and realizing I didn't want to work my way to the top of them and feeling as someone who'd been driven competitive my whole life, like, oh, I must have lost some of my ambition. And then coming out of it, you're like, Mm. you feel like you don't have that until you create that space and and, and do all that. So I want to chat later about kind of that journey for people as they're kind of trying to step back. But first, what are your thoughts on how our institutions, our society create pressure to keep people on the default path? Because I think the vast majority of people are still kind of going down that default path. And I'm curious as to what you think are some of the pressures that are driving that. Yeah. And I think this, this is the part that uh, is hard is I don't have a good answer for like, can everyone follow this path? Because I saved up some money and sort of like protected myself from running out of money immediately. Right. And I did it while single. I didn't have a family yet. And that's part of why I left. Like I wanted to leave before all that started in my life. And, um, practicing like agency and like giving yourself time to like disconnect from like previous rough institutions you're a part of and like time to experiment. It takes like so long. I'm five years into this journey, five years and few months. I'm still like, I feel like I'm at just the beginning of like a maybe 20, 25 year journey. It's, it takes forever to figure out what you're doing and you're constantly tweaking And like our society is set up around full-time workers, right? And full-time workers, um, like we talk about policies. Like if you look at politicians and what they say about like employment or insurance for like self-employed people, all they want to do is turn self-employed people into employees. (laughs) Like that is their big idea. Let's turn them into employees. Um, But that is not what self-employed people want. If you ask them like, this is like, even if you ask like Uber drivers, they don't want to be employees. Right. Cause then Uber can tell them when and where to work. Right. But this is like policymakers work full time. Look up the people that propose like these bills about self-employed people. Look at their LinkedIn and there's never a gap of a single month in their life. They have no imagination themselves of any other possible way to live a life, right? And Venkatesh Rao has written a lot about this. Um, and like healthcare, like I, it's a disaster. It's a dumpster fire in America. It oh, yeah. inhibits innovation. It is the greatest excuse because it sort of is true that people say like, oh, I wish I could do something, but like I, I can't risk healthcare. So it's like this initial um it's this like psychological tax because reality like if you don't make a lot of money you'll get subsidies for healthcare healthcare is basically free 
And like, this is the thing Americans are a little dramatic sometimes too, is like, if you make like 30 grand a year, you like healthcare is mostly going to be free, but the system still sucks because if you have an issue, you're going to have to pay enormous out of pocket costs, right? So you can get insurance. You're not going to go extremely broke, um, but it's still like a psychological tax. And we have all these psychological taxes which like we form society around full-time employment and we see any other path as risky. But like, what the hell is the point of America if we're not like centering it around crazy weirdos taking interesting paths, trying shit and like trying to create an experiment? Yeah, that brings up for me from your book, the uh, John Stuart Mill's ideas around like experiments yeah. and living. And I remember when I read... I read on liberty. I was I was so fired up because the way in which he frames like the importance of just creating all of these different things because we don't know. Like we don't know what the future is going to be like. And so it's imperative that we have all these experiments running. W- what did you take from his work? Yeah, I mean, to him this is the point of freedom to experiment. And it yeah. sort of pairs with what Eric Fromm writes about, which is this positive vision. Of freedom. We have this very dumbed down version of freedom, especially in the US, which is like, I, I have the freedom to do dumb shit or like say mean things. <laughs> like, this is what people focus on much more than like the freedom to lean into the possibilities of my life. The problem is on that positive side of freedom, the freedom to do things, not the freedom from oppression, the freedom to do things comes with inherent responsibility. Right. So like I don't expect to be covered by like insurance or like have all the upsides of self-employment because I am taking risks. Um, and that's great. But we also have a system which probably has millions of people um, who would otherwise lean into that freedom to live a bold life and experiment, try things, start businesses, create things. Um, we're leaving so much on the table, right? Yeah. Um, and even like reframing the freedom to do things with the inherent responsibility that comes with that is just like a story not told that much. It's like, it's more like the freedom to like work hard and suffer at a big organization is like the ultimate freedom that we orient around instead. Yeah. The thing I love about the ideas from the book Self-Renewal, which I I think I've mentioned to you, is they talk about how when the organization or a society, like you think of America a hundred years ago, when it's younger, it's more vibrant. There's, you know, frontier that everyone's exploring. Risk-taking is encouraged. Same with an organization. And then as these things mature, as they become more rigid, there's all of this internal pressure to, you know, just follow the, the status quo, to follow the rules and the policies. And, you know, he goes into an unbelievable depth that, that bringing these ideas to life. You have a ton of experience, you know, working with organizations. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on what makes some of them more capable of being full of life, like having vitality, creating conditions that their employees, their, their people can kind of be more alive and have more autonomy and what makes some just like stifling and rigid and, you know, exactly like what we, we don't think people want. Yeah. So I, well, I think one more thing on like the societal lens, I think our lens has become money, money, Mm -hmm. like ignites our brains with emotional salient, like responses. 
like a salient experience of like feeling alive is like when we think about money. Um, and like that has undermined a lot of the debate and discussion around what's worth doing, right? We don't think about the environment or the ecosystem anymore. And this will, I'll tie this to organizations, but like I read this amazing book and like from the 19. 19- 30s or something i forget the name of it but it was like we've run out of frontier in america yeah um and because of this like the country is built on this experimental mindset but we're not really embracing it and we're we don't know what the frontier is and you could argue like the digital frontier is the frontier of america and in many ways has become the frontier of the world through this american like entrepreneurial lens And like, that's why I do have this positive vision of the internet um, to create and try things um, in my book. But like a lot of the discussion around like what's worth doing is around like policy. The way people even talk about healthcare though, is about like more or less insurance benefits. It's not around like, how do we enable more people to thrive and live meaningful lives? Right? The things around like, tax cuts or like all these things is about more or less benefit. It's right. not around like how do we enable more people to thrive? It's around like fairness and getting back at people and getting people um, the things they deserve. It's like, this is pointless. So like organizations are the same thing. A lot of them are being run as these zero sum um places and sort of like protect by the ecosystem all of all of that which is that like once you're a big company you basically just pay to like protect yourself so like these organizations are becoming fragile and they sort of become these places to work that don't generate ideas and aliveness but like they're our biggest companies they give people jobs so like we protect them and we sort of anchor society around that yeah, I, I feel like with my experience in organizations, there's some that are like, we do this one thing and our job is to like never lose market share, <laughs> to never lose an ability to do this one thing. Yeah. And then there's others that are like, we're a collection of people that have this rough aim that are moving in this direction and we're smart enough to figure out how we're going to evolve and adapt. And unfortunately, there's way more of the former than the latter, but I'm curious if you've seen similar things and, and what what are your thoughts on how we could make more of those more innovative, more adaptable organizations. Yeah. So it's like, I, I think like when people say late capitalism, um, it's kind of funny because I feel like we're like at early capitalism. Things like healthcare are not capitalism. If you wanted to start a new hospital, do you know who gets to decide whether or not you get to open a new hospital? It's the other hospitals other hospitals get to veto anyone starting a hospital. <laughs> so if, you, if you're a hospital, would you ever allow another hospital to exist? No. And that's ba- basically the st- status quo in America, right? So like healthcare is 20% of GDP and it's not a competitive industry, right? And so many industries are like this because like if you are a big company, what do you want? You want to get bigger and you want more protection from competition. Right. So like the answer to a lot of these challenges is like more innovation during the pandemic. One thing that happened in healthcare was like telemedicine was suddenly approved. 
now we have all this innovation and like if you google like if you google like i have a runny nose you will now get ads or like telemedicine visit $40 get prescription immediately that's actually easier even if you have insurance to see your normal doctor who might say i can't see anyone this week or like we can't do telemedicine you have to come in it's like you're just going to pay the $40 <laughs> So like, that's great. Like we need more of that. And similarly to tie this back, like, I think one thing that motivates me is I want to enable more people to live lives like mine, which is like experimental and trying out new paths. Overall, that's good for the world, I think. Um, And like, there's a number of things holding that back. And a big thing is just culture. Like a lot of people look down on my path. Um, they might be like, I wish I could do what you're doing, but like, then they'll shame their kids for like not going to take a job or like a high income. Um, so I'm trying to talk about a lot of the benefits of my path a little more. So I, you have an interesting article on chaos theory applied to organizations and and just reading through it a bit, it, it really seems to touch on how organizations can be more adaptable, more full of life. What are your thoughts on, on that area? Yeah, so I think this ties to what I was saying before around capitalism, which is that um, it, capitalism is not like a thing. It's an ecosystem of competition and change and evolution, right? And uh, there's this common refrain, especially among like HR and people leaders, that like work is broken, organizations are broken. But I think that is actually the wrong frame. The right frame is that like work is constantly changing and like the biggest risk to organizations or institutions is if they become fragile and then completely fail, right? Work is always going to be broken in a sense. Like any organism, any organism, organization, institution constantly has problems, but problems aren't proof of things being wrong. That's just the state of the world. Things are always changing. Things are always evolving, right? The thing is, like, do you have a healthy amount of brokenness or chaos? Or, like, the amount which is, like, things becoming too rigid that actually lead things to fail, right? Do you have the kind of chaos that is, like, a lot of people trying things and starting things and giving them up? Or do you have the kind of chaos that is, like, Enron getting creative about like financial instruments that ultimately might bankrupt the company. Yeah. Like is, is change some, a, a force for good where you're, you're riding the waves of change or is it just exposing all the places that you're fragile and rigid? Yeah. And so reframing this, you'd actually want to lean into it. Right. So there's this article um, written in the MIT Sloan Review in 1999. Um, actually, this guy was a former consultant as well, Richard Pascal. And he argues that you want to be on the surfing on the edge of chaos. Mm. Right. And Love that, that is where you'll have the most aliveness, generativeness, um, creativity, things like that. And the things you actually need to generate all of those positive things is like, you need like redundancy. So like you need multiple people working on the same things, but like often in a competitive way instead of what a lot of organizations do, which is like hyper specialization, very specific 
nodes, one person doing one thing, um, which is actually much more fragile, right? And especially if you're trying to like generate new ideas, new systems, change how the company's thinking, you would want people challenging the status quo in a healthy way. Um, but a lot of people, how they run organizations and how we think about organizations are like hyper specific about optimizing to like the 10th decimal place, the current state. The problem is baked into that is this like long tail of like that might blow up the company five years from now. Yeah. This is the part that's so frustrating to me is that if you look out 10, 15 years, like it's so much in the company's self-interest to be the way we're talking about. And yet they have these short-term interests and all of the incentives that the managers and the leaders are operating on are typically like three years max, five years maybe. And so like you're saying, they're just, they're optimizing on the fringes instead of really leaning in on innovation. Well, and this might be where we need innovation and how we think about structuring organizations. Um, Most people don't care about even three years from now. Like most people in power to decide things care about this year's salary. Right. And if the company goes downhill, they'll just leave. Like this is the downside to like no company Mm -hmm. loyalty is nobody actually cares about the institutions once they're at scale. Like people working at Google right now, they don't really care about Google, the average employee. They just want to like extract their paycheck. But if there's another company that will pay more, they'll just leave and go get their paycheck somewhere else, right? So this is fine at an individual scale. Um, but if you have a high degree of like non sort of what you would call chaotic organizations, you have an enormously fragile system. And this is what we saw in 2008 with the financial crisis. You had all these companies that were too big to fail. And at cost of the society, we had to bail them all out. Right. Similarly, in the healthcare industry, like maybe there's a little more chaos now, but like we probably need more. Yeah. Like it shouldn't be the case that like every doctor is now joining a large institutional practice of enormous healthcare systems. Yeah. I'll give you an example from healthcare that hits this exact point. In health insurance, you know, everybody thinks that we're now shifting to value based care and the insurance companies are all of a sudden going to care about the cost of healthcare. Problem is, at least 25% of their people turn over every year. And so they're basically making a bet that, oh, well, three years from now, I won't have these people anyway. So why would I worry about their diabetes or their heart disease? That's going to be a problem five, 10 years down the road. And so like you're saying, the structures, they just create this short-term focus where, yeah, well, we'll we'll try to prevent a knee replacement, but we're not going to really try to support people becoming healthy. Yeah. And I mean, that's they're more or less correct, right? Because the government has just increased and extended, again, subsidies for health insurance. What do subsidies do? Boost premiums. Right. Like who pays for that? Society is at, a lo- at large, right? And then people argue, like, we need more subsidies. We can't take away people's health care benefits. Nobody's talking about how do we innate, create a system where people can thrive and live meaningful lives. <laughs> yeah, I love this. Well, I want to I want to shift a bit into talking about individuals. And I think, you know, one of the things that a lot of people know about, I was just chatting about this on a, a recent episode, is the idea at a company level, this notion of innovators dilemma, where the infrastructure that a company has prevents them, their status quo prevents them from evolving. And I think that same idea also applies to individuals, where further people get in life, the more, you know, they're weighed down by their their kind of possessions, their things, their ways of seeing the world. 
And I think a lot of what you write about is how people can break out of that. Yeah, I think at an individual level, it's, I think the thing I often ask people, and I start off my podcast with this question now, what is the script you grew up with? Mm-hmm. Undoubtedly, we have a story about how our life is supposed to go that we grew up with, right? And if there's one thing I want to do is like basically just make people aware of this such that they can determine, okay, I'm doing this. Am I willing to pay the cost for this? And that's it. Like just raising more awareness that we more or less less are like looking for scripts to follow and then follow scripts. Like that can be huge for people. And often like people have told me that they're in full-time jobs reading my book that they realize, oh, I'm deep in this system. Now I'm aware of it. Now I can like lean into my life 10% more and know that like I'm going to be okay and it's worth it and I'm on a more sustainable path. Yeah, I I do get the sense that you're definitely not encouraging everybody to leave full-time employment to jump out. I know a lot of people are like, this is the one way to do it. And in your work, I constantly see you kind of highlighting the nuance there and saying like, it's, it's not that this is necessarily better for everybody. It's just different. The only people that get that impression from me are the ones that have not really like read my stuff or are just extremely insecure about following a path like mine. So a funny thing that happens to me on my path, and it took me a while to realize what was going on is that, People would say like, well, don't you worry about X? Don't you worry about Y? Um, What about this? What about this in the future? And like, I would get super defensive in my first year. I'd be like, my path makes sense because of this, this, and this. And like, I've thought through this. And like, I really thought like I'd convince people that my, I was taking a thoughtful approach. They just get angry. And like, what you realize is that people are sharing their deepest, darkest insecurities with you. They're just afraid. They're telling you their fears. So now I'm like, Oh, okay. Like, don't you worry about running out of money when you're retired? It's like, well, no, not at all. That's why I'm on this path. Um, But you're telling me your fear. That's your fear. That's valid. I respect that. Um, Are you willing to tango with that and like explore that um, and see what that feeling's doing for your life? Um, That's the interesting thing, right? And like, I think self-employment for me has been great in terms of actually exploring a lot of my deep insecurities and fears. And the result has been, yeah. And the result is not that those have disappeared. It's that I'm just more comfortable with them. I'm afraid of um, dealing with a health crisis and sort of being Mm -hmm. stuck in a situation where like, I can't support my life or like my wife or kids in the future, if we have kids, right? It's fear of not having enough money when I'm old, but like that fear is there, but I'm like, "Mm, I see you. Like you're kind of irrational. (laughs) Like most people die with some amount of money, right? I'd live in the U S where like, so security is relatively generous and, even if it like runs out, it's like, I don't know, figure it out. A lot of people manage on less money than I have all around the world. And it's like, is it willing to like 
just throw away the next 30 years of my life for this fear? No. So it's like, I'm willing to just exist with that fear. Yeah, it's interesting how a lot of people, especially on default paths, a lot of the fears are projecting out the world as it is today and naming things that are easy to know and say, well, this is a very concrete fear that I can imagine. And I feel like the more that I've gone down, you know, more pathless paths, like the fears that I have are such around all the unknowns. It's like all the ways the world could change and you can't even predict it. Because if you can predict it, you could largely, you know, get comfortable with it. But I think the cool part about what your story is highlighting is how it seems like you're actually training yourself to be more adaptable, to be more flexible. And so you are more prepared than most people to confront that change in in a world that we can't even imagine. So my book is really an exploration of the positive sides of stepping into an uncertain or an unknown path, right? So when people are like, what about all these bad things? It's like, yes. And there might also be these unknown positives that you can't actually imagine or experience, right? And yeah. this, is, this is the hardest thing because I know I didn't actually understand these. I only left my job because I was like burnt out. I had some savings and I wanted to run away. I, at the time, did not have an understanding of the positive things that would open up in my life. I am more excited about the future now. I am more excited about the possibilities of my life. I have more ideas for the possibilities of my life. And I've experienced a state of being which is so, like, it's life-changing what I've experienced. A state of being and showing up in the world in which I feel connected to myself and my work, I never experienced that before for an extended stretch of time on my terms on my previous path. And like, these are the things that tip the scales. So it just diminishes those fears in that it's like, yeah, the fears are still there, but it's worth it. When you're on a path that's not bringing you alive, trading like the known discomfort okay, this kind of sucks, but it's worth it. For the uncertain discomfort is crazy. So like often what tips the scales is like an imagination of a different possibility or different upsides, right? But it it's fundamentally hard to imagine, which is why I don't recommend most people quit their jobs and do that indefinitely. Negotiate a sabbatical or figure out some way in your life to find three months of space to think and reflect on your life. It's transformative and it's like almost categorically a positive experience for people. Do that for a three month stretch in your thirties. That means all you need to do is find three months out of 120 of your months in which you can have space to disconnect and not be a full-time worker. I think it will fundamentally change your life and mostly in a positive direction. That, that's touching on this theme that's come up in a lot of these conversations I'm having, which is around this idea of non-doing and, and the way it's bubbling up in different areas. I know you touched on that in your book. Were you familiar with those concepts before you stepped away from, from your job? No, that's what got me so curious about writing and exploring these things. I was like, what is happening? This is cool. This is different. This is exciting. This is explosive. And also, I don't have words to describe what's happening to me to other people. And at the same time, I feel really uncertain and scared about my future. 
it's like really hard when you're on this path, which is like, you can't really like, all you really have is like a feeling that you're in the right direction. And you can't explain that feeling to other people. To other people, your path looks crazy, uncertain, and they accurately assess all the risks, fears, and uncertainties you're facing. But they can't experience that like deep feeling in the like depths of your soul that are like, yes, keep going. And that's that's like all you have at the beginning, right? So like I just like searched and, and like, my book is hopefully trying to explain that like one single feeling. And for some reason, it seems, seems to be resonating with a lot of people. I couldn't have predicted that either. Like that's another uncertainty in my path. But like I just keep thinking about it and talking to people about it and like trying to name this thing. And if you look throughout history, like I know you've read the great work of your life as well. All these people throughout history describe it too. It's like right. Robert Frost, he needed to write poetry. He moved to a farm in the middle of no, nowhere and wrote for 10 years. He found out what he wanted to do, and then he did it. He built his entire life around it. But he had to experience that state of connectedness, which is impossible for other people to experience until they've actually just experienced it. Have you found that you're more connected to your feelings, your intuitions, or just kind of your body since you've you've stepped away and, and created more space in your life? Yeah. I was so caught up in living in the future on my career path, very disconnected from myself, very disconnected from my feelings and emotions. And part of what made me connect with my emotions is feeling so uncertain and also feeling the very real vacuum of support and respect for what I was up to in my life. And I sort of had to like go inward and like figure out what I stood for and sort of like build up the courage and strength to reemerge in the world and show up as myself. Um, so yeah, it definitely has. And I think a big thing too, in like meeting the partner I have now, my wife, like she's so connected um, to her feelings and emotion. And I don't think we would have connected if I hadn't left my job and yeah, she's encouraged me and supported me so much. That's amazing. It's a, another example, I think, of how the environment that you surround yourself with can can shape you. And, and that's been the most powerful part of your work for me was just this sense of helping me see how much I'd look to the external world to say what I should do, what I want to do. And I'd almost lost some contact with yeah. just that ability to connect within and say, like, this is what's coming up. And when you're in such a thinking mindset, such a planning mindset, you're constantly pushing for something in the future that you just lose contact. And so as I've created more space, as I've tried to embrace some of these ideas, it's been really exciting to see how that contact creates just much more awareness of what, like, what's really important to me, how, how I can show up day to day that will align to that. And then, you know, just seeing, seeing what's emerging and, and accepting that you don't know what's going to come up, but you're, you're kind of along for the journey. Yeah, and a lot of guys have this story in script. It's scripts again, right? Like, oh, if I don't make a lot of money, like, who's going to date me? It's like, well, there's this hidden side, too. If you become more alive, you will become more attractive to certain types of people that actually value that. And I don't think that's something I really understood until I went out on my own. 
right? So yeah, I was always frustrated with like the people I would like go on dates with. And like, I would say these things like, oh, I want to like maybe explore, travel the world, take a year off from work. And people were like not into that. But also I was a fraud. I wasn't actually lived doing any of those things. I was just bullshitting. Um, yeah. So like I was the, like attracting the same person I was. And like, that's yeah. why I was frustrated. Are you familiar with Christopher Alexander's work? Like timeless uh, no. way of building. Okay. What you're describing, I, I just read the timeless way of building and the, he talks, it's, it's a book about architecture and how we build the spaces and, and all of that, but it's about how do you make those come alive? And he then connects it to people. And he talks a lot about how, whether it's a building, a room or a human being, the aliveness comes from when the internal forces are not at odds with each other, when they've right. been resolved in a way. And I think that, that frame, what, you're, what I'm hearing you say is exactly what I felt myself was all this internal tension, a way in which you're at war with yourself that prevents that aliveness, which prevents other people from seeing you alive. Yeah. And it's amazing. Like some of the most privileged people in the world making really high salaries are often the ones most rejecting my ideas. They take as proof as I probably did at one point of like making a lot of money is like, well, you can't give that up. Right. <laughs> it's like, so we have this weird paradox of like the people who have more wealth and opportunity to take risks are most scared of it. And that's probably why they be were attracted to like high wage jobs in the first place. Yeah. But like, you can't just quit your job. People say this. It's like, well, yep, you, you actually can. Yeah, let's dig in there real quick because I've shared your book with a few people and one of the, the questions I've gotten back or one of the, the, the ideas I, I, like you're saying people really struggle with is how can, how can people reimagine money? Like how can somebody who's been on that, who has kind of structured their life around that, you know, where they live, what they do with their friends are all, whether they think about it, driven by a certain amount of money. What advice do you have for yeah. those types of people? I think financial uh, beliefs lag financial reality. So what I mean by that is we often uh, just sort of um, live out the financial um, beliefs we grew up around. So like if our parents were very afraid of money, we grew up very afraid of money, very afraid of running out, taking risks, lowering your income at all, right? You even see this, like I talk to a lot of people who like made a lot of money in tech. They made extreme amounts of money, but like they're still operating with the script they had when they were 23 years old and they were in debt and they were just trying to get to even. And they haven't adjusted to like, oh, how could I take this money to reimagine my life? Right. They can't actually leave their job because they're just as scared as they were when they were 23. Right. Um, and this is the same reason people like you say like, okay, what's your number? Okay, if I reach a million dollars, I'm going to be happy. They reach a million, then they're like, well, actually, two million is a good goal. It's like, no, you're just scared and you're like afraid right. to like shift. Um, and you see this is like, I even like dealt with this as well. Like I had this mindset that like you don't spend money on yourself as an entrepreneur unless you're like making money. So like when I was first starting on my path, like I wouldn't spend any money on anything. I was just lowering the costs and I was trying to make money. I didn't like 
actively like, oh, if I spend a thousand dollars on this like nicer camera, it'll be better for my course and like it's worth it. I could earn it back. It was like very scarcity mindset. And I realized a lot of that was from my conditioning of like how I grew up where we didn't have a lot of money when I was younger. Um, so like challenging myself to think about money in more creative ways and I'm still struggling with this. Um, but one of the most powerful reframes, I, I wish I remembered who told me this, but it's like, Paul, like you made good money in your previous path in consulting. Why don't you consider that a gift from your former self to your future self, right? So, so you did suffer, you were disconnected and like you earned more money because of that. Consider that a gift to your future self. And I love that reframing. And it's like, yeah, I, that's great. So work for 10 years, nothing against that, and then make some money and then gift your future self some freedom. That reframe is so helpful to go back to the point on people who are looking at their income going up and up. I still struggle as I've done more entrepreneurial things. Like I am anchored on the most money I've ever earned in a year. Like we think in calendar years, we have this high water mark and there are times where I'm like, ah, remember when my value was up there? And so, you know, I think reframing as a gift because people otherwise it's this burden that they feel of like, I have to get back to where I was. Well, in I realize it's a huge constraint too, right? So you see somebody like Elon Musk at the extreme end of risk taking, he just takes all his money every time he sells a company and puts it all into like another company, make bigger and bigger bets. You realize he's more motivated. Like he's solved his money fears. He has like no money fears. He just like wants to allocate resources and capital towards his aims, right? I am not good at that. Like, and I've gotten better. Like I am now like, like upgrading my Riverside membership. It's like, all right, I'm just going to get the pro because like I want to do this. And like, I feel like my podcast matters and then it motivates me to get uh, sponsorships and things like that. But like, it was so painful for me to do that at first. And even like on my strategy, you stuff, like I run this course and do some corporate workshops with companies. Like I did really well this year, but I'm so scared to like hire, hire someone and bring someone on to like help me take that to the next level. So you realize like if I'm scared, like so many people are more scared than me (laughs) and like I'm sort of a risk taker, but like, yeah, I don't know how you solve this. Like there's a, there could be like more creative ways of like funding things. Like, um, yeah, I imagine I could probably like crowdfund something among like friends who want to support me and see me succeed. I don't know how that would work. Like, I think people want to see me like continue going on my path and like don't want to see me get a good job. But like, could there be some sort of like guarantee in a vault that was like guaranteed for me doing that? I don't know like what the funding vehicle looks like, but that's the interesting like societal question is like, how do you encourage people like me to take more risks? How do you encourage other people just to take any risk at all with their career? Um, super interesting. Yeah, I sent out a pithy t- uh, tweet the other this weekend about how effective altruism, but for creative individuals with an emerging vision. And the idea behind it was inspired by your article where you're talking about effective altruism and seeing some stuff. But at its core, I truly believe it, right? Like it, for the future world, we need more people who feel secure and, and safe enough to like lean in on their creative visions. And I think, you know, going back to, you know, John Stuart Mill and, and John Gardner writes a lot about this, like the fertile bed of ideas and activities that we need happening 
so that, you know, the, the, the things that are happening in the world, we have the people that can meet those challenges. Maybe we need to do something on this. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I love, I think there, I think there's something there for sure. Well, I think well, like what Tyler Cowen is doing is great is emergent ventures. Like I know he's funded some people like Dave Perel, but he's talked about it. Like he's gotten four grants and like he funded Dave at the beginning when like Tyler Cowen was challenging him. You're not dreaming big enough. Right. And yeah. like just that, like that vote of confidence and permission in the form of money can be transformative. Like he probably yeah. didn't need those grants, but like they were sort of like a fake because to dream bigger. And it's like this symbol of like you have a backstop. There are people that believe in you and want to see you succeed. And here's some financial capital to prove it. It's like belief capital can be more valuable than other things. But like, the way we think about money is that we need a return for it. Where's your business mm. plan? Where's your proof? That's the same reason nobody takes a leap to like go out on their own without a plan. Yeah. Do you have any visions that are so big they scare you? I'm not good at that. I need. I, yeah i I don't like to think in like scale, but like I do. When you say things like this creator stuff and like encouraging more people, it's like I sense I'm headed in that direction. Like, I think I need to support more people to take creative paths in my life. I don't know how to get there. And like, maybe I do need to be dreaming bigger. Like, I've I've thought about applying for an emergent venture, but I'm scared. Yeah. But I'm scared of what somebody might see I'm capable of. Tell me more about that. <laughs> I, I think I know I'm like pretty capable person. I can do a lot. So I do like everything of everything I do. So like I do design, marketing, digital marketing. I do like tech stuff. I can code a little. I do my website. I do graphics. I do audio engineering. I do video editing. It's like I know I'm like a pretty impressive person. <laughs> But like, how could I be allocating my attention and energy in a better way? Um, but I think part of the problem is like, I haven't got to like a level and maybe I have finally this year of like, okay, I'm going to continue making money. I need to make bigger bets. Um, yeah. But also like, I don't want to get over my skis either. Like I, and this is, well, this is something I've been grappling with over the last year is like, I've sort of been having this pep talk with myself is like, I think with like the book, I've had some success there and like trying to be a little more ambitious um, in terms of like manageable bets in leaning into like challenging myself of like, oh, you're not actually going to create a job for yourself. I think I was so scared in the first few years that I was going to like recreate another shitty path that I was really hesitant. And that was actually amazing because that hesitancy and that like fear caused me to create that space in my life, which was so magical. But as I've learned to be a little more ambitious in the past year, and like, I think moving to Austin was a big like plus for me being around people, like actually being ambitious and like not destroying themselves and like still seem pretty alive and connected. It's like, Oh, I can do this. And as I've leaned into it a little more, it's been like, Oh, you're okay, Paul. You're going to be okay. <laughs> so like this is a really big thought experiment for me. 
towards the end of this year and like next year. So like, yeah, I don't know. I think this is like a really like leading edge for me and I don't know where it takes me. The thing you model so well, I think is doing work that feels alive, that matters to you and that that's okay. That like that aim is enough. And I think that's been a really powerful context for me. So I can see how this idea of like shooting bigger in some ways you are threatening well, what if I end up in a place where like I'm doing more, but I don't enjoy it as much? And, you know, was that, was that trade-off worth it? Yeah. And I think one thing that's helpful there is I no longer think in like a work day. I think work day is a really bad framing if you're self-employed. Like I think in like the work month and the work year, right? So I love writing and writing is a vital part of like the things that help me connect to myself and my soul. Um, And if I don't write for extended stretches, I get antsy and I feel disconnected, right? So I've been doing a little more writing this month and reading and reflection, and it's so energizing. So like, I think the thing for me is like seeing my year and seasons. Okay. There needs to be like these creative sprints where I create a lot of stuff. Then there's like the steady writing, but then there's these deep reflective periods. Then maybe there's these more active modes, right? So I think having that balance in like a work year is really important to me. Yeah, that that makes a ton of sense. There's one other kind of concrete topic I wanted to to get your thoughts on as it relates to pathless paths. Um, I have a six month old daughter. You mentioned a few times this conversation around kind of thinking about a family. How how does the kind of thoughts around a family shape and change kind of how you think about your work and and your pathless paths that that could emerge in the future? I think it's perfectly aligned. It's the whole point of everything I'm doing. I sort of saw the future when I looked around in corporate America of like men that were sort of cynical about their families and cynical about their careers. It's like, that seems pretty silly. (laughs) I don't want that. Um, So like part of this was a bet that I could like create work on my own terms that I'd have more flexibility and I could be more present in like the family I want to build with my wife. And like, we definitely want to, want to have kids and that's in the short-term future. So, um, yeah, but also like, I think if you read my book, you'd probably sense I have a certain amount of humility that like I have, I have principles about how I want to show up in the world, but I don't care about like the methods of the work or like how I make the money, make that happen. Do I want to work in like a job that's going to undermine all my passion to show up in the world? No, but I don't think I'll have to anymore. Um, I don't. I don't need much in terms of resources and status and income. So, like, I think I could make it work now. And like, I've just opened up more degrees of freedom to like live the life I want in the future. So, uh, for me at least, it's perfectly aligned. Other people, when I ask them, like, w- like what they'll say to me is like, "Well, I'll just ask, like, well, do you want to send your kids to private school?" It's like, yes. Okay, well, it's $30,000 a year. Do you want to have a like, nice car? Do you want to have a nice house? Do you want to live in a fancy neighborhood? It's like, okay, all those things are negotiable for me. For you, they're, this, like, they're part of like, what you want. I'm saying I'm willing to like, refactor things and remix things and sort of like, be more creative. Um, but for you, like, you needed at least $200,000 to live that life. That's not what I'm aiming at. Yeah, that what you're describing is was kind of very similar to my experience where I was very curious how I'd feel once we had our daughter around some of these conversations around ambition and all of that. 
And what came up was just an even stronger desire to live life on our terms, to have the the ability to make those choices you're describing. And I think it just gave it even more fire, even more meaning. Um, and the stakes feel feel higher, quite frankly. Like I don't want to be, you know, commuting to a job far away where you you don't have any ability to kind of be flexible and adapt. Um, so it's interesting. It's interesting to see the, those choices people make and and how that how that changes. Yeah, I've been I've been exploring this idea of like the new dad bump, which is like mm. it sort of like enables you to double down on the path that matters to you. <laughs> like it yep. narrows the focus and just like, okay, I'll just be a little more ambitious or like make a little more money. Um and like having kids is expensive. That's just fact of life. But like I keep seeing like people that are like, oh, I found out like my partner's pregnant. Or like I'm having a kid and like they just get way more laser focused on what matters to them. Exactly. Um, yeah. I, so I wonder if like this is a real phenomenon. We need some research on this. <laughs> I, I joke with some friends that, that as they they like share that news with me, it's like, well, just be 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 aware that you might feel this strong primal desire to hit the gym, get stronger, and to go out <laughs> and just start accumulating some resources. And also like structure your life so you have have more flexibility. I was like, those are the three things that like I've heard many people say they wanted. Yeah, and I think that's real. That but that's underneath a layer of fear. You need to get sure. past the the script first way of life. The script first way of life is that here's the way you're supposed to live and this is all I can do and I have no options to do anything else. Yeah, no this is this has been amazing. I I could could chat all day about all these different topics. I I'm curious, you know, one of the things I'm most fascinated about the the theme of this, you know, as we've talked about, you know, self-renewal from an organization perspective, but also how individuals can go through their life. Are there any particular seasons in your life right now? You mentioned kind of how you're thinking about your work, but just are, are there any kind of places where you see self-renewal coming up for yourself? Yeah, right now, for sure. I, um, I, we moved back to the U S last year. My wife got the green card and like, us got crazy expensive the time i was gone so like i felt this pressure to like build and try to make money and i it was after my book and like i was leaning into a lot of this stuff in the corporate consulting and i sensed i needed to like hit pause again and we are in lisbon for a month before going back to the u.s and it's been great like i've just slowed down a bit i've read more i've reflected more i'm like reconnecting with the writing again and i don't know what's going to emerge um and like this conversation has been generative for me too and like things to think about and i don't know what's next um it's sort of like like at amazon they it's always day one, but like, yeah, yeah, this is the pathless path. I I don't know what's emerging, but yeah, I'm definitely like really enjoying this slower pace right now and excited to see what um, emerges next. Yeah, I think that's the the coolest part about connecting with people like you. I, I think Rob, Rob Hardy is another example that comes yeah, to mind. People that are that are not just talking about something, like you're not just talking about it. Like every encounter someone has with you in your writing in this conversation like you're living the pathless path it's not it's not this like buzzword you came up with it's like it's literally your life yeah it's a bet in a certain way of being and it seems to be working out for me and i want to help give more people permission to do it in their lives too yeah any final words as we wrap up just to that you'd like to share to people that might um 
kind of poke some holes in the default path or, or nudge them to take some baby steps along the, the pathless path? No, I think, um, I think there's a tremendous opportunity with the internet right now. The ability to find others that are curious about living an intentional life. We first met because I had a link on my page and you booked it and had a conversation with me. And it was like, so excited to have that conversation with you because it was like, here's somebody that's also serious about exploring life in a similar direction, similar age, similar life path. And it's like, you you don't need any credentials. Actually, I have no idea where you worked or where you went to school. Um, I just know you're curious about living an intentional life. And like, that's basically all you need to like show up in this world. So like, you don't need permission. Um, but there are communities that are willing to support you and want to be part of your journey too. So like, come join us. I love it. I think Paul is, uh, you know, the ultimate on-ramp to, to new ways of, of living. And so, you know, I, I, can't, I can't speak highly enough about kind of the impact that your book has had on me, just, just your ideas. It's, it's quickly become one of the ones that I, I most gift to people. So I will, I'll make sure to link that in the show notes. Any other places you'd like to point people that you think um, could be good resources for them? Uh, my newsletter, I write pretty often, boundless.substack.com. Um, and yeah, it's sort of a contemplation of my life and like what I'm thinking about or experimenting with at that time. Awesome. Well, Paul, thanks so much for, for joining. And uh, we have lots more to chat about another time. So we'll have to continue these conversations. Sounds good. Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Sam.